Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right, all right, we are live. Welcome, gentlemen, Brandon, Brian. And Adam, of course. Adam, uh, cheers to Friday night drinks and happy hour talking everything crypto. But before we do, Adam, uh, as a CIO, do you want to give us a main disclaimer? Sure. Um, Yeah, this is for entertainment purposes only. None of what you're going to hear today is advice. And um, you should seek advice from a professional that is familiar with your situation before... um, partaking in any of the suggestions covered in today's podcast. All right. How was that? That was fantastic. So uh, welcome, Brandon, Brian. Um, before we get going in the many topics that we want to cover, I think it's uh, it'll be useful for you guys to give a bit of your quick backgrounds and what your current projects are, and, uh, and then we'll get into it. Whoever wants to start first. I'll, uh, I'll take the first stab at it. Um, so I'm a co-founder of Cartan Group. We're a, a fintech uh, consulting company based in the Cayman Islands. Most of our clients uh, are focused on some layer of the crypto stack, whether it's, uh, whether it's a network in, in and of itself or a value-add token uh, running on top of it. Uh, and then we also have a side project, uh, called Code Came In, where we offer free technology literacy training. Um, we, we run, I think, about seven different courses in that, and we offer it to the island uh, and run around the island getting sponsorship to uh, provide these programs. Go back a little nice. further than that, though, Brandon, because I know you've got a background in finance, right? Like you did spend 
whatever, 10 or more years in finance, operations, back office, um, tech, et cetera. So yeah. let's hear some about that. So, so my background, I'm a, a software developer. Uh, I, I moved to the island 13 years ago, built a software uh, team at a uh, hedge fund management uh, company, one governance company on island, and then uh, moved to a couple of banks. I was uh, My last role was CTO of uh, a private bank, and in there we built a crypto custody solution, uh, and uh, we launched that in 2017. We built it in 2016, uh, and ultimately, I just kind of wanted to be closer to the bleeding edge, so parted ways with that firm uh, on very great terms, still speak all the time, and and decided to uh, get closer to the bleeding edge of but, yeah, my, my background, three different banks. I built a, a, a system for end-to-end, uh, an insurance company. I did a social media startup at one point in time that didn't work out so great, but we had a good time and a lot of fun. Great. Now, how about you, Brian? I know your background is also in, uh, more involved in the actual investments, um, traditional investment world. Yeah, so... Um, uh, I grew up in uh, Toronto, Canada, uh, worked there for a couple of years for a private equity slash uh, hedge fund looking at early and junior natural resource explorers. Uh, after a couple of years, uh, moved down to the Cayman Islands to work for a private bank uh, where I worked very closely with the uh, managing director on a number of different projects uh, throughout the bank, all from making things uh, more efficient to trying to maximize revenue generating opportunities um, for, uh, for the bank. Uh, and then after a couple of years there, moved on to a family office, uh, still in Cayman. So I've been in Cayman for uh, eight years now. Um, and don't, don't have a, don't want to move away after being here for so long. Uh, but at the family office, I looked over a lot of the, uh, investments, uh, existing investments when I joined and also uh, new investments, uh, while I was there. And then after that, uh, kind of, uh, moved, kind of to Sterling, uh, where uh, Brandon and I did a virtual asset custody uh, platform under a regulated institution. Uh, so that was the first and uh, only one at the time uh, in the Cayman Islands. Um, so uh, from from doing that, and as Brandon mentioned, we after a, about a year's time, we wanted to get closer to the bleeding edge and work with uh, companies uh, in this area, um, kind of uh, both help them and uh, be more in that industry. So that's when we started a Cartan group about uh, two years ago now. And now we have a team of uh, seven in the Cayman Islands and about seven uh, overseas as well. So uh, that's been that's been what we've been doing for a couple of years now. Two years. That's like 10 dog years in crypto land, right? It's doji. Doji. You guys are veteran. Doji, doji years. <laughs> doji years. <laughs> this is why we thought it would be really good to have you guys on because it's a really neat mix um, of backgrounds in both sort of the front office and the back office for finance and several years in the nuts and bolts of crypto. And I think it might be useful, Brandon, you, you said something about the full crypto stack. So maybe can we, can we pull on that thread and, and maybe what's involved? What are the layers in that stack? Um, how should we think about that? Um, sure. So I think Mostly how I think about uh, crypto, a, a lot, actually, let me just back up. So another way to think about it is 
um, when you're building a product, a software product of sorts, right? There's there's all these levels which you know everybody focuses on. Oh, the software engineers have built this great product, but there's project managers, content creators, content writers, product managers, uh, and so I think of sort of the crypto stack in the same uh, analogy, where yeah, there's a, a core network, right, and and that's kind of a, a layer a layer one network or a layer two solution on the layer one network. And so you can consider that uh, Ethereum, Algorand, uh, Bitcoin, and then people start building on top of that stack. So you start creating NFTs on top of a, a network or you start creating uh, other products within uh, that environment. And so you start stacking up things on top of everything else. And a great kind of analogy or, or piece to how this works is thinking of your, your actual computer. So you kind of have this hard drive and this motherboard and CPU and, and everything else. And then somebody's written a bunch of drivers to write data to a hard drive or keep track of memory inside of RAM. Uh, and then of course I write a lot on a layer of top of that where I don't write a driver and keep track of all the pixels on the screen or all the information on the hard drive. I just say, hey, operating system, give me this information. So when you look at, when you look at the stack, uh, the crypto stack, and you look at, let's say, Algorand's network or Ethereum's network, you say, all right, they wrote the operating system uh, of this network now, and they've aggregated a bunch of users into this with with assets, capital, and so now I can tap into those things, whether it's a, whether we're calling an asset, you know, something that has tangible value or, or non-fungible, uh, it sort of, it's all blending into one at this point in time, but you just, you sort of have the network of people with assets and you start layering different functionality on top of that and providing uh, different opportunities for people to capitalize on. And I guess when I say assets and capitalize, I, I generally don't always mean it in terms of, uh, you know, this this converts into X US dollars or X fiat currency. I generally mean it in the term of value creation uh, and and what's the value of, of me being able to participate in, you know, some activity uh, and does that, does that uh, translate into other activities or other value creation activities, I should say. So unlike sort of the internet, there are several versions of the base layer in, in crypto, right? And to my understanding, they have, they serve each of the different um, potential base layers or, or chains or what have you, they kind of, they're built to serve different purposes, right? So, and there's also sort of Bitcoin as the original base layer and then others have evolved over time to fill gaps that were recognized in Bitcoin's kind of operating system for lack of a better word, right? So how should people think about the evolution of those base layers through time? What are some of the gaps that the Bitcoin base layer has that other um, protocols have 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 closed over time, and then and where are we in that process? Do you think? By the way, I, I asked Brandon, but Brian, chime in obviously wherever you yeah have something to add. Brandon, go ahead. <laughs> um, so, so I think uh, I wouldn't. Um, I, I think the the original version, right, the the, the Bitcoin uh, network when launched was solving a single solution, which was, which was creating a uh, internet of money or an internet money uh, that can, that can transcend uh, the world right without, without borders 
sort of, if you look at the internet economy, it, it needed a value uh, system, and and Bitcoin fulfilled that uh, that role originally. And of course, it was super early, and uh, you you sort of had to write move this transaction to over here. And what what the second version of of the network gave us was programmable money. So Ethereum sort of allowed us to write software. And the difference is Bitcoin sort of serves a single purpose, which is send value from here to here. Ethereum sort of creates a a platform to say, send value from here uh, to here if this happens or if that happens, right? So we can create some base logic around uh, what those things are. The, the two of them, uh, I guess that there was there's multiple iterations before Ethereum, uh, to be sure. Uh, but if we just kind of put a fork in that and say, or put a flag in it and say Bitcoin was one, Ethereum potentially was two, uh, now you're starting to see sort of the third uh, engine come out, which is same functionality as Bitcoin, same functionality as uh, Ethereum, but way more speed, right? And so now we're talking... Uh, thousands of transactions per second on some of these new proof of stake networks. And we're starting to create the actual uh, requirements of a financial system uh, on, on these networks, right? So we went from single use case to a platform. Both of those use cases sort of got to hundreds, tens of transactions a second. Maybe you can argue a bit more. Uh, but now we're talking thousands of transactions per second. And so that sort of equates the the requirements of a financial system uh, at scale globally. And so I guess the final piece now that's kind of coming together and what I've recently started seeing pop up on all my feeds is the crypto singularity uh, where, where, where everything starts to converge and starts to look like some, some crypto uh, value chain of some sort. So uh, as you start looking at the creators, uh, you know, social media content creators, influencers, they're going to, there's going to be, there, there is starting to be a push to monetize their content and their strategy and let them own it. That moves into a crypto singularity. The financial services uh, sector starts moving into this crypto singularity. Um, and with the advent of these algorithmic or fiat backed stable coins, stable coins being the key word there, uh, we're starting to see, you know, some stability on moving into and out of an asset, but also we have all the volatile assets for us to really participate on at the same time. So can I just go back to layer one, the, the Bitcoin, Ethereum being having a certain use case, and then the next evolution being the same idea, but faster. Uh, what I'm curious about with, with regards to both Bitcoin and Ether is that was it a feature or was it a bug? their inability to transact at, at the volume that we're seeing today without the excess costs. I, sorry, Brian, I'm doing most of the talking. Uh, I don't, I don't consider it a feature or a bug. I consider it a, uh, a state of, of the first version of these things uh, to come, to come into production. Right. Into- Was it just lack of foresight then that they didn't never expected it to be this popular, especially <laughs> Ethereum. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think it, let's go back to, you know, uh, your first mobile phone to RIM to the iPhone to the iPhone 12, right? Like you got to start somewhere and that's kind of Bitcoin and, and it solved a huge issue where it brought peer-to-peer networking and cryptography together to create unique value. Um, that's, that's sort of the first solution, the first attempt. And the nature of technology is that it's an iterative process. Uh, and at the point in time that Bitcoin came out, 
it was a perfect scale for the size of the market that yeah. it was. Um, and so it wasn't over-engineered, it wasn't under-engineered, it was perfectly engineered for, for that market segment at that time. And then uh, I would just add to that, there was a famous, uh, I wouldn't say battle, but a um, disagreement amongst uh, people in the Bitcoin community on uh, the uh, size of the blocks um, in the network uh, and how there should be uh, more transactions or a bigger block uh, size uh, per block to allow for uh, more transactions uh, in that area. And I think that from the uh, outset of that, you know, one was Bitcoin. What came out of that was Bitcoin Cash. Uh, I I don't have a kind of opinion on either or, but based on price, you can you can kind of determine that Bitcoin, the kind of the original lower uh, size blocks, uh, is currently winning. So um, in terms of that community trying to get more transa- transactions faster, I don't think it has been a big detriment to its adoption. One of the Ryan things Pitty. that distinguish... Sorry, Rodrigo, finish your uh-huh. thought. Yeah, One of the things that distinguishes um, between Bitcoin and where Ethereum, it looks like they're trying to get to, um, and other networks is this idea of... Uh, Bitcoin relying exclusively on proof of work and a lot of energy uh, engage in trying to migrate Ethereum towards something called proof of stake. And then there are other models that like Chia, for example, which um, has an entirely different way of, of proving the validity of transactions. Can you maybe go into the difference between proof of work and proof of stake and um, the relative merits of either method? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll go again. <laughs> um, so, so proof of work uh, does require uh, some energy. There's, uh, you know, it's hotly debated how much um, energy and, and impact and global, you know climate change and things like that. But I, I generally I generally look at the, uh, so, so what it is is uh, you have to effectively run a mathematical equation uh, and just iterate up on that mathematical equation until you find uh, some, some random number that will, uh, that will make the block uh, start with a number of zeros, right? So, so that basically starts at one and then goes and iterates up to two and three and gets to a trillion. And, and so we sort of found some random number in between there. And that's obviously a, uh, a very expensive process for a computer to run through. And of course, then you get thousands of these guys all competing because the first person that solves that, right, it's a very competitive environment. And the first person that solves it gets a big reward to do that. Uh, you, can, you can theorize or philosophize on, on the merits of it at the end of the day, you can, you can, you, there's two sides, there's two points to this argument. One, you can say, well, it's wasting a bunch of energy for, for a financial system uh, that we don't need. The other side is uh, it's a financial system. And if you kind of equate all the financial system banks and, and other infrastructure that's currently running, right, like that probably sucks up more energy than, uh, than Bitcoin currently does. But also you can say it's an incentive to, uh, to get renewable energy because, uh, ultimately, the folks that are running these massive mining uh, operations 
are, are highly incentivized to minimize their costs and to, you know, to, to, so to go chase uh, places that, that provide minimized energy, you ultimately probably get to a, a renewable energy source to provide that, uh, that minimized cost. So you're taking energy, you're storing it into something, uh, which is you know, Bitcoin. Information. Uh, and, then you're, and then you can use that energy again in some other thing, buy a house or whatever it is, right? So uh, there is an argument on both sides that, that, uh, that you know, mining is a waste of energy. The flip side to this argument is the, 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 the mining industry uh, is sort of on the back end of the rest of the crypto community, right? Everybody focuses on Bitcoin mining engine requirements. But if you look at some of these other networks that are coming out that are running on proof of stake, like, like they're not requiring much energy to do these things. Uh, and so the argument starts to fall apart that, oh, we can't do crypto because it takes too much energy to do. Um, and so if you look at like an Algorand or you look at uh, Ethereum when it switches to staking, the, the requirement, uh, I run multiple nodes that are staking nodes on my laptop, right? On one of my spare laptops. It doesn't have any extra energy requirements. Never, the fan never goes on. Uh, I have an archived version of that entire system. Uh, and so it, compete, it competes and it contributes to the network at the same value add uh, that, that one Bitcoin so, so you kind of you kind of look at these things and go, well, this is solved. Anybody that wants to participate in what we can call a energy efficient operation, go participate on Ethereum staking or Algorand or Solana or something like that. But I think you know, to one of Brian's earlier points, when you look at the price, right, one of them is working very well, uh, and everybody else is fighting uh, to to start to start getting their. Uh, their toes in the water. So if we invent cold fusion and energy is abundant and it's so it's there's no scarcity value to the energy input. I'm just, you know, I'm dreaming. We could also go, go down the quantum computing uh, angle as well, but that, that's less interesting. But if we if we suddenly invent cold fusion and energy is no longer scarce, does that challenge the proof of work model you know as in, i mean the question really is what it, all things equal if energy is not an issue is one more secure than the other well i think that gets into kind of the the more of a belief uh right now of if you believe the proof of work uh, i would say algorithm or rules uh, are more secure than a uh, proof of stake uh, rules or algorithms uh, if you look at in either scenario the the, the algorithms that there are various uh, different uh, kind of not alter not alternatives to proof of work but different algorithms of how that occurs similar to proof of stake you have various different networks that are proof of stake but have different ways in which it uh, generates uh, consensus uh, and gets everyone to agree on a history that is uh, immutable. So I would I would say this time it's it's kind of what you uh, kind of would would believe in. I think it's still very early, so I I don't know who the winner would be. But if it, currently the market is saying that proof of work, even with all these concerns, that uh, I think. Uh, uh, are can be can be explained 
uh, is, is still currently the uh, go-to market leader. And I guess there's always the risk of the new proof of stake technologies haven't been around as long as Bitcoin, which means that any um, exploits that the founders of that particular protocol might have not thought about, um, that there may be there may be holes that might still be found in the future. Whereas Bitcoin has been around so long that we kind of know it's pretty secure as, as far as we've seen. Uh, I- Security is a, a fairly abstract concept in the way we're talking about it, right? Because effectively, your attack points are: uh, can I, can I, can I rewrite the balances of a chain, right? And so, in order to do that, you sort of fork this chain, convince everybody that you know these new balances that you've done are correct, and sort of and and, and push it back out. And 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 proof of stake or proof of work. Um, you know, there's there's attack points on both, but the the sound math behind the cryptography of it is is solid, right? So, so you you can you can sort of say that the the two points of attack that you're looking at are: can I amass enough wealth um, and attack one of these consensus algorithms in order to fork uh, the current version of the general ledger, right, of the chain, and then rewrite? Uh, balances and, and reassign value to other contracts. Like that's the main thing that we're we're we're, we're discussing, I guess, if we're talking about security. Mm-hmm. And and I think I, I think when there's either you know when Bitcoin was at a trillion, I'm not sure. I don't really watch the price of, of any of these things, but if Bitcoin's at a trillion dollars, then then you can assume that there's a trillion dollar reward, right? And and if you're at Ethereum and it's at 300 million or five, I, I like literally have no idea. What, the market caps of these things are because I just really don't track. That's Brian's expertise. Um, but if it's 400, there's a $400 million reward. Uh, if it's $10 million, if it's, you know, a billion dollars, if it's $400 billion, these are the reward points to go and attack. And the math is sound across all the networks, right? It's the same cryptograph where nobody's inventing a new cryptographic engine to or algorithm to, to do the math. So, so really you're talking about rebalancing or, or rejigging, uh, value assignments, and if if that happened in one scenario, the entire thing would crash, right? If Bitcoin was, a, if you saw anybody uh, compromise a value in Bitcoin, in Ethereum, in Algorand, Solana, any of them, you would see that entire network fall apart uh, immediately. So there are attack points, and and the bigger the proof is, the bigger the network, right? The risk the risk in financial services is: do I trust uh, this? Uh, entity or organization or institution to you know control my money report and, and and go from there the risk point is certain to switch to do i trust the engineers that built this network and uh the, the validation of that trust uh, starts to show up when when you start getting to some critical mass how much money how much value is this thing worth because uh, you can assume state actors are attacking those networks at all times right so right the more the more population growth inside of the network, uh, the more value it becomes, the more attack points it becomes, the more safe you feel, the safer you feel uh, as uh, knowing that it's not being compromised in a public manner. Because if it was compromised, it'd be immediately obvious. Uh, right. that that so let's go down the stack a little bit. We, I know that you guys work with uh, Algorand quite a bit. And I, I want to understand, so you got, ETH is going to, is doing this major series of transitions to, to try to become more competitive and less costly to, to transact in. 
they seem to have the second biggest network effect in the crypto space. And, you know, you have a lot of developers and projects within the Ethereum chain. Um, but I think, you know, we don't know when these changes are going to come. And you have these competitors such as Algorand, Solana, um, uh, and a bunch of others that are all kind of trying to take uh, an, a bigger stake. What, what is it about, let's use Algorand as an example as to what, what it's solving that Ethereum is trying to solve or may, may be trying to get better with ETH 2.0 and the like. Um, so I would, um, I would argue the solution Algorand has brought to the table is like, so, you know, there's, they were the first kind of to come out with a, a true proof of stake um, model. I would say the argument that they're really solving is Here's a financial. Here's the current financial system, right? Here's every swipe of Mastercard, Visa, um, American Express. Here's all the interfaces that tap into that globally. Uh, what Algorand has done and said, you can't. We can't create a crypto network uh, unless we can mimic the current base requirements. And so, uh, their transaction speed allows us to create uh, the financial system uh, at a global scale, right? And I think that's. Uh, the most important piece is the global scale, right? Because currently, um, most of most most people's thinking is confined to their geographical proximity to something. So maybe I'm confined to, hey, I'm trying to do great for Cayman, and you know, I'm trying to bring business in the Cayman. Or if I'm, you know, I'm from Toronto, so you know, uh, big Canadian fan, and so you know, maybe I'm trying to build value in Canada and bring business into Canada. But all of a sudden, I've started by having that thought pattern, I'm starting to limit my addressable market. And so uh, now what Algorand's system has given us the ability to do is tap into the entire internet as an addressable market and do uh, financial system level transactions, the quantity of the financial system transactions globally, right? And so I can have, uh, if I'm like a, if I'm a content creator, uh, I can have an audience that spans the entire world and I can have immediate access to capital as they give it to me not swipe, wait seven days, shows up my bank account for a 30 cent transaction or a fractional of a cent transaction. So all of a sudden we start getting all of these new opportunities and the base requirement for those opportunities is speed. Uh, and networks like Algorand, this next layer, this next version of these networks uh, are starting to provide that speed uh, like nobody else. And why would somebody choose something like Algorand instead of um, the layer two and three that, that are being built on, on Bitcoin? Like the, the, the analogy that's used is that you got in the United States, you have all this money that's actually not transacting at level one. I think it's called Fedwire, right? Where it takes, when you transact, it actually takes six months to go from one uh, user to the next. But in between there, there's a series of layers that allow it to, to, to feel like you've transacted instantly, like your Interact card or your, Google, your Apple Pay. If these layers are being built out in, in Bitcoin, why would something like Algorand be better or useful? So, uh, so, so I, I, would, I would say that um, the, the most secure, so one is, I think, security, the most uh, secure a, a network uh, is is at its base layer, layer one. Uh, when you start going and building layer two, layer three, layer four, uh, it gets uh, way more complex and potentially uh, less secure than uh, layer one. In terms of uh, Algorand being uh, potentially a better 
network to use than uh, than Bitcoin for uh, kind of the global financial services uh, infrastructure is one that, as Brandon said, it's it's fast. So uh, block time uh, in Algorand are about four and a half seconds, whereas uh, something like, somewhere like Bitcoin is 10 minutes. Uh, so uh, they can also process uh, more transactions uh, per second uh, at this time. And they have a great uh, engineering team that is continually to, to get that uh, number higher and higher. Uh, the transactions on Algorand are, uh, I guess, cheap or inexpensive. Um, so it takes it costs 0.001 algos uh, for each transaction. Algos is probably about a dollar right now, so you're less than a penny uh, per transaction. Whereas in Bitcoin, that could be five to ten dollars, even though it's still uh, very low, just uh, uh, inefficient for uh, micro payments or you know many 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 payments at low values. Uh, and I think the, the, the kind of final thing, how, why something like Algorand is a bit better is um, for uh, finality, uh, meaning the, the way the consensus algorithm works uh, in different networks is there's a way that all participants agree on what has happened and the history uh, of the ledger. Uh, in, in networks like Bitcoin, uh, it takes time. So uh, you might be aware that whenever, uh, if you open an account at Exchange, uh, they will wait uh, for six confirmation uh, in the Bitcoin network before they will actually uh, credit you that Bitcoin for you to use. Because there is that uh, possibility of, um, call it, different different chains or, 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 or other um, chains to get uh, longer. So therefore, it come, gets reversed and therefore you... That transaction may or may not have uh, actually caught holding the bag. Yes. Uh, whereas in Algorand, after every block, four and a half seconds, the way their algorithm uh, runs, it's, it's final. There are no possibilities of other chains, other transactions, other networks. It's that has happened uh, with finality. So I think those those three things um, are, are why I believe Algorand makes a bit more sense at this time for um, for the global financial services. Why don't we? Why why don't we see more rapid adoption of some of these newer protocols? Is it is it the Betamax VHS conundrum, right, where it doesn't really matter if the technology is vastly superior if there's a, a enough of a, a head start in terms of network effects, right? If a sufficient number of people have adopted a protocol, then it doesn't really matter if a new and better protocol comes along that does all of the things that the old protocol does and infinitely better. Um, what do you think is holding some of these newer, better protocols back or potentially better protocols back? Uh, so I, I so the, the obvious answer is network effect. Uh, is definitely um, yeah, that, that's the elephant in the room. Um, but but I would I, I do make and I do ha- I do argue that in my opinion there's going to be millions of coins across the world uh, and they'll be built on all sorts of different networks and so it'll become a proposition of of it'll become an engineering question. Well, I, I need to have this and this is what I need to have access to. What what's currently happening? Uh, in the ecosystem is that soon we're going to have cross-chain transactions. So I'm going to be able to go from Algorand to Ethereum to Bitcoin back to back to Algorand over to 
Chia and, and Solana and whoever else. Uh, and so once that once that sort of happens, it'll become uh, it, it'll sort of I theorize that it will sort of dissipate the uh, the network effects of any one network because now to become an engineering question, what's the best platform for me to build on? Okay, that's great that there's you know a hundred million users over on that platform. I can still get access to them, right? And so and so now we'll have cross chain functionality that gives us access to that network. Bring it over to this network. Uh, all the networks will start to be intertwined uh, with value creation amongst them, uh, and and then the entire ecosystem starts to go like this. Um, every network you're seeing right now get built um, is is basically a platform, right? It's no longer just single use case like Bitcoin. Um, but Bitcoin obviously still continues to be uh, the market leader in terms of in terms of percentage that it outweighs against everything else in terms of market cap, in terms of value per transit per uh, asset. Uh, but but Bitcoin is you know hard to make as programmable money uh, inside of inside of all these contracts and, and everything else. So eventually, people will start wrapping Bitcoin out of the network onto Ethereum or onto Avalanche. And we'll start pulling those users into all different networks. The thing you'll the the reason you know uh, crypto will be um, you'll know that crypto is the value transfer agent. Uh, crypto networks will be the value transfer agent when you stop actually hearing about uh, crypto, right? So um, Linux, you know, the year of Linux is coming in in the late '90s, early 2000s. Oh, when's going to replace Windows? When's Linux going to be the desktop that everybody uses? Uh, well, it happened, right? Every Android phone is a Linux OS. Uh, most of the web is run on Linux, but nobody, nobody went, oh, that was the year. We nailed it. We got the year right. Um, and I think, you know, the same thing's going to happen in this environment where my mom isn't going to know that she's transacting in crypto. She's, she's just going to be sending Canadian dollars around, right? So um, that's, when, that's when we know, and then the network effect no longer matters anymore. We're not even talking about the networks uh, at that level. I think so this that- is the interoperability that you're talking about, right? That these uh, a lot of these platforms are making it. They're creating their own platform. They're trying to entice developers to come to their platform, but they're also making it so that it plugs in easily to other networks, so that there's there's going to be some easy access. So this is outside of the exchanges that currently you can buy and sell these different types of coins. This is more operating and creating the sinew uh, within these organizations to be able to, to you know, maximize u- usability for the end user. Yeah, correct. The, the interoperability is probably the best word to use. Cross-chain transactions, another one. Um, the, the networks themselves, right? Like, like Ethereum isn't building a, a bridge into Bitcoin, um, although there is a contract to do that. Uh, but what's starting to happen is another network is forming. Right, so you have Algorand here, you have a, a intermediary network here, and you have Bitcoin here. And this intermediary network manages the mesh, uh, the interoperability, right. if you will. So they deploy a contract here, wrap a wrap a Bitcoin into that asset over here, and then control the asset, and then everybody can transact the way they uh, so see fit. What is an example of that type of network, the sort of connective tissue? Uh, so they're starting to pop up uh, now. So there's like the P network. Uh, it's P dot network. Uh, there's Alexer that's going to pop up fairly soon, uh, and a few others that are kind of popping up around town. Um, 
Is that around the FTX or the uh, Sam? Sam, I, I heard an interview with Sam from FTX. I think he's also part of that uh, Elixir network, right? I think. Anyway, uh, um, I, I I don't know off the top. But those are that, that's just that's it's in between the exchanges. Is it is Polkadot one of them that does a similar thing? Polkadot has uh, it's it's not quite the same uh, as uh, Axelar and and E Network, but it does have some cross chain functionality uh, in it. You can't do that yet. So, what distinguishes the 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 crypto asset model from the Linux analog is that you know. What is Linus Tor Linus Torvald never really monetized Linux, right? Like he, you know, he he did through through different channels, right? Through more traditional sort of um, wrappers around that um, that operating system. But I mean, what distinguishes crypto is that you've got it, you've got tech, and then there's a monetary value that is placed on that tech. In the in the form of these coins that are traded, right? And so, like, is it reasonable? I mean, you guys have invoked this a couple times during this conversation. Just look at the market cap of Bitcoin. Obviously, the market ha- believes that Bitcoin is the is the protocol of choice, or you know, this or that, right? Like, is is that the right way to gauge? the level of adoption. How, and then I think a lot of people that are not in the crypto space, even I think some people who operate in the crypto space struggle to try and connect the dots. Like if you've got a security, a stock, then the theoretical value of that security is the cumulative sum of all future cash flows discounted back by the the discount rate, right? The, what is the analog for that in the crypto space other than sort of the value of a coin being sort of more an indication of a popularity contest than a, it's the voting machine as opposed to the theoretical weighing Weighing. machine in um, traditional markets. Do you guys have any, maybe Brian, you've got, you've given this more thought on the, on the sort of money side of this whole thing. Sure. I'll, uh, I'll attempt to, uh, to do my best on that side of things. Uh, So when you talk about uh, something like stocks where, yeah, sure. A share is uh, supposedly the um, the future discounted cash flow uh, of that company. Uh, I, I would argue that some other uh, asset classes uh, don't have future cash flows, uh, like gold, like silver, uh, like a lot of different commodities. So, but they still have uh, an enormous uh, amount of value. Uh, in terms of why certain uh, units of certain networks have a value, I think, is the the belief that you want to participate in that network. You want to have a stake in that network that you uh, specifically uh, believe in. Uh, one, this now, this isn't my analogy. I read this somewhere and I really liked it, but uh, Bitcoin can be described uh, like a platypus. So when a platypus, when scientists first found a platypus, uh, it had characteristics of mammals uh, and amphibians, and they had no idea what to do with it. So they actually had to create a new category under mammals to put specifically the platypus type of animals. Uh, I would 
or this person where I read would argue that Bitcoin is like a platypus and created or has created uh, its entire new uh, asset. So I think it's it certainly has characteristics uh, of what we currently know, but it is also something uh, completely different. Uh, and that is, I, I believe, one of the hardest things to wrap your head around. And I'm still wrapping my head around it. Well, I think but, it's... Yeah, go ahead, uh, Brandon. I have something I, to say. After. I, I think just to add kind of... Wait, the, innovation isn't something that... Uh, right, when you innovate on whatever it is, it, it's, not some, it's not something you do and say, hey, how do I take this process and, and you know, add a tweet to it um, if I'm going to do some sort of global innovation, right? And so you can kind of look at, right, taxi services and software and Uber, right? Like Uber wasn't like, how do we buy a million cars and disperse them around the world and then we can have the call-in center and we'll do it. They were like, let's just aggregate all the clients and then we can convince everybody else. And so they created, uh, they can create all the, they can convince all the drivers to then pick those people up. So they created a software system uh, in order to, in, in order to aggregate users uh, and then aggregate the drivers and, and basically run an exchange in the middle and, and, and match them. Uh, you, you weren't, so, so the same kind of what Brian's saying to your question is you're, we're not trying to build right, the stock market in crypto. We're trying to say right, it's a stock. It's, it's, it's access to a network. Uh, it's, it's got value. Its value is you know, denominated somewhere down the line in U.S. dollars, but it's also how that network performs and what you have access to within that network. Uh, it's, it's a collectible. It's not a collectible. It, it's, it's everything and there's nothing. It's, it's it's all of the above. Well, it, it seems to me that there is a it is an emergent phenomenon and we're going to see use cases that we could have never imagined. And one of the ones let me give you an example of one that I think is a coin that legitimately has value in terms of expected future cash flows, but it's taken advantage of the zeitgeist and the infrastructure of the crypto space in order to create a club. Uh, of, in, of like-minded individuals that believe in a certain mission um, and and are using the this company's coin and also also to get paid to be able to build out the network. And this is the Helium network, right? So the Helium network does uh, something called proof of space. And so what they're trying to do is they're, they're working in the Internet of Things, right? All the little scooters, the dog tags, uh, you know, find your phone type of networks that, that don't require such um, such... Uh, throughput as a cell phone, although I'm sure they'll get there. But basically, they have a they have a coin. You can buy yourself a little modem that you put on your window, and if that modem is at a certain distance to another modem, then you've created a peer to peer network, and that peer to peer network now can can find those little scooters and tell the scooter company where it is, right? And so you can buy two, three, four of these. You can convince people to do. It. You can create a business where you're buying a thousand of these and, cre- and making sure that they're spaced in the right place and put them put in the right ways. But every time that they commit, a, they create a task, they connect in a certain way or they find a scooter or they find a dog tag, they get paid in that company's crypto. And it's, a, and it's, an, it's very cheap. The little machine costs like 500 bucks and then you just start minting. You start creating passive income. And you can use that either to keep your faith in that company and become part of the group and you get all these types of behavioral incentives to keep your money in that coin or you can convert it to bitcoin and you in a way mine at a you know one-tenth of the cost of, of trying to mine crypto so that company is now if you look at the network it's it's throughout the united states 
the companies are already paying them in order to use them because they're a lot cheaper than the uh, than the internet companies. So they're they're disintermediating the the traditional telcos, and they've done this through this incentive system that only exists in crypto, in a way that them going public in an exchange in a traditional exchange and just owning your company doesn't right because they can't give out special perks. They can't just to decide to start burning their own coin in order to create scarcity and all these things. And so the behavioral finance side of it, combined with true use cases with future cash flows and the players that are creating the, inter the interoperability, it, it's just a whole, it's like a wholesale change to a new way of, of, of building capital, the capitalist society. And it, anyway, that's, that's the way it's I see like it. It's sort of like using the network effect to commercialize a concept and obviously there's so many business models that depend on a critical mass of users in order for the full value of the commercial opportunity to be realized right mm -hmm. so this this um this protocol or this kind of approach facilitates capital raising and the sort of tribal network building function that is required to build these types of commercial um, ventures, it sort of bundles them in one, right? And so I think that's, that's, a, that's a useful metaphor that was, that was helpful for me. And just quickly, another one is the a a cash network, just quickly, same idea, but this time with cloud computing. Right, you get. Is that delivered. like the cash app that Joe Rogan always talks about, or is it no, no, no? A it's no. a cash a a a k a s h. So a cash. You get. You can either download some software and use the uh, allows uh, a cash to use a part of your hard drive uh, in order to to create a peer to peer cloud computing network in order to compete against Amazon and, and Google, or now they're going to start distributing these little boxes, these little small computers that you can plug into your computer, plug into your Wi-Fi network and your, or hardwired in. And just by turning that on, you're going to get a cash coin. Right? And you're going to provide a massive cloud computing um, uh, operation that is also more secure because it's decentralized and therefore your data is not subject to being in one single spot. Anyway, there's a lot in those. That's a, a legitimate business with cash flows that they're using crypto in order to incentivize, create those, those um, network effects, right? So it's just, it's a, it's a whole new world. It's just- yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Brian. Uh, I was just gonna say that those, uh, like, like Helium, we're very familiar with Helium. There's a few of, uh, of those kind of boxes uh, on island uh, now. And it, like Helium, it's very interesting to, uh, to, I think what we'll see in the future, combine the call it share or equity nature of a company along with its uh, utility uh, kind of all together in one. So I think a long time ago, someone was saying that it's like being one of the first users of Facebook, but also one of the first shareholders of Facebook. And as I use it more and as I get more people to use it, uh, I'm incentivized because uh, I own a share of it. And then I can, I'm also incentivized because I can use them uh, more uh, if I, if I wanted to. So that, that is a very, uh, I agree that I think that's a very interesting thing to kind of see how it plays out uh, going forward with these new tokens and actually what they uh, potentially can represent. Yeah, that's very helpful. Brandon, sorry. I think anytime you're like, you're talking about value money, um, you know, the, the traditional route up until 
2009, 2010 has, has always been anchored in, you know, effectively U.S. dollars if we're, if we're going around the world. And there's obviously, there's obviously a, a whole pool of untapped people that have never uh, participated in, in a global financial system. They, they just plainly haven't had access to it. And, and as these new business models uh, evolve, they will give access to a, a whole portion of the world uh, and create capital and wealth creation uh, at a scale, at a rapid scale that we've never actually seen before, right? So I anticipate uh, large portions, or I, I speculate that large portions of, uh, of the world's economy that, that currently aren't fully participating in the financial sector part of it uh, are, are now going to start thinking, hey, well, if I can run a helium router in, in wherever country and start generating value, uh, and and then other people are, you know, when you get a little network going and then the dog walks by or the scooter drives by and it tracks some information, um, you know, they're now participating and getting value and buying bread and milk. And, and I think a lot of people in first world nations uh, discount the rest of the world, right? They, oh, this is this is dumb. This isn't U.S. dollars or this isn't the world that we live in. Oh, they, you know, they shouldn't be able to participate on Wall Street and they can't buy into a hedge fund. Uh, and I think this this entire population that's never contributed before uh, or never had the option to participate or contribute before are now going to get access to new business models. And and I think that's going to change uh, that's going to change the makeup of how people think of value, right? Value creation, value distribution, value dissemination. You're tapping you're tapping a brand new market to be able to access areas that they couldn't access before. So yes. that, that helium yeah. thing, my father, there's like one helium thing in Colombia, in a place in Colombia, right? If you're, in, if you're a first mover on this and you get a bunch of helium thing or you make your own and you start, that's what my father did. I'm like, you can make some passive income here. You get 10, 20 different guys in Lima and all of a sudden, mm-hmm. you, got, you got yourself a massive business, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that would never happen with a traditional model where you have, the company itself has to go to Lima and figure out the legal logistics. No, this is purely driven by the network effect of crypto. And then the other use case in terms of tapping into a market is that 24-hour trading of some of the largest growth stocks in uh, in the world, right? When you have the other side of the world, retail, poor, that no, no broker in Peru wants to open up an account for somebody that has $20,000, right? But if you can get into the crypto space, now you can buy Apple, Tesla, uh, and a wide variety of stocks. You can buy GameStop if you want in the crypto space. Peruvians can't do that. Now they can. Right? So you're creating a whole new opportunity for the disenfranchised to participate in global growth in a way that only the rich could in, in, in recent history. That's another well, they pay a pretty massive financing rate to get access to derivatives that wrap around these, these stocks. Right In the end the capital class will end up profiting from this far more than the um, than the poor, I think. But I do think that the tech, the distributed tech, ends up benefiting everybody in a way that is highly universally beneficial. Um, so that's a fair point. I, I mean, sure, there's always going to be uh, arguably a pyramid, right? Of, of There's sort of always going to be a capital class like that uh, way of putting it. And, uh, and there's going to be um, everybody else building themselves up. But I think if, like in Peru, we, we deploy a small network of uh, helium routers and we start giving them an extra $2,000 per month because they've minted a bunch of H- HNT, uh, like 
that that's a that's a very big leap for some folk, right? That, oh my God, it's that's a huge leap. Uh, and I think that I, I agree that I don't know if I agree, but yeah, some folks aren't going to go and deploy a helium router and then they're going to be you know starting Apple or investing a million dollars in Apple shares. Uh, but they are going to they are going to have a better community uh, in their society in their in their in their geographical region. And they're going to be able to participate on a network that's global in scale. So maybe they start connecting with, Lima starts connecting with uh, some folk in Southeast Asia or some folk in, in, uh, in Africa or parts of Canada, right? North, North, there's, there's all sorts of uh, areas in, in the first world that, that need some connection and need some upgrading in terms of that stuff. So. How does that work? Like, um, is it, this all is highly reminiscent of the multi-level marketing type programs, the Avons and the new skins and stuff in, in the nineties. Um, so with helium, if you are the first to bring a node, I may not be using the right language, but, um, bring a node to Columbia and then you disseminate this concept within Columbia and, you know, 10,000 or a hundred thousand nodes emerge in Columbia. Does, is your node sort of the original node and then you accumulate all of the value that, or, or is it, okay. No, so, so it's, there's a, there's a point where you're making, you don't make, you, you, you get uh, rewarded for being the first and having a network on period full stop. And then the, the more you get other, the more you're able to connect with others, the better everybody does because oh, really, I see. Okay, because point, more right? transactions, so to speak, more are going you through actually, your. Well, the moment router. you create a legitimate, useful network, that's the Understood. maximum amount of revenue you can get. Yeah. Right. So, the, and there's going to be a point where you start. You're one of the first. You get all the nodes, and nobody wants to be close to your node because it's proof of space. So, 200 meters at least in order to create some like proper distancing, and then. If, if you get too overcrowded, everybody suffers to incentivize them to not put the routers close to each other, right? So there's a point where you're now going to start competing for space. But in the beginning, right. you're able to like maximize your revenues and then you're going to plateau, right? And get to a certain level where you, the economics have to make sense. Yeah, and um, the density of the population actually doesn't matter, right? <laughs> because right. you've got, you need to have a certain that's radius right. around you of space. So I want to make sure, Brandon, you've mentioned this a few times during our chat. Um, but this idea of um, distributed value, where, for example, um, a musician or some sort of content creator um, is able to build a tribe and a brand and a community, and by virtue of, the, of, of bringing value to the people that are in that community, both the content creator and everybody within the community is incentivized to build the community, right? Um, and we're seeing this more and more. Can you give some examples of this and how this is taking off and what the future of this model might look like? So I think there's a very interesting project that I've been watching uh, for a little, not not very long because it's, it's only just launched. Uh, but it's called BitCloud, right? So it's like a it's like a decentralized Twitter uh, at this point in time. Uh, and the the interesting thing is is that everybody that registers effectively gets their own personal token in it, right? So I, I have an account, BitCloud.com/slash/Parawanab, uh, and and so people can buy my token. And so as I create this network, uh, I can start saying my network is literally worth five dollars. Right? 
I don't have a big network. Uh, my market cap is like $16 because every time somebody, they, they buy it, it mints it at that point in time, right? So I, I, I have no network. I'm not, I'm not a very public guy. I, you know, I've, uh, I, I mostly keep to myself, but, but as, as you know, some of these influencers and some of these real content creators that are super talented start, start doing these things, their, their value, their, their market cap for all the value that they create, right. That people follow, like, you know, I sell a vodka, I sell a vodka, uh, soda, right. And so I'm selling, I don't, I, I don't gray goose. Um, and you know, they kind of pay me to do that, but now I can participate. I think you are going to be the next uh, big deal in, in influential social media. You're not alone. I, I'm going to place a bet. Yeah. Well, <laughs> from everything I've seen, you guys are killing it. <laughs> uh, but I would, I'd place a bet, right? I'd buy your token. I'd buy your coin. And of course it's not going to, it's not going to have value outside of the ecosystem, um, you know, in, in you know, day-to-day life. But I might be able to hop out of my token into a parent token, into Ethereum, into U.S. dollars, into gas in my car or milk in my fridge. Or, or maybe I'm a bit more influential and I can buy a house or you know, I can buy the car itself. Um, so, so I think that's kind of what's happening. I think BitClout is, uh, is certainly the most interesting experiment in the space. Uh, the other one that, that I would look to on, like, on creating a network on, on top of one of these blockchains is... Uh, Definity or the internet computer. That's, I don't know a lot about it. I can't speak mm. to it, but there seems to be a lot of activity and interest. It's a wild project. Yeah. And, and so I, I'm definitely not an expert. I can't speak to it, but I've started, I've started, I've started paying attention, right? So I'm going to start studying it and researching it and forming my own opinions over the next, uh, next weeks or months on it. But I think that's another engine that might be able to, uh, do this thing. Of course, there's also NFTs, uh, which which are super controversial in some corners of uh, the internet, and, and my corner of the internet is not so controversial. I, I, I can make sense of it. it makes sense to me. Um, you know, just let people be and experiment, and, and value will get created inside of all of that. It's sort of a when I say it out loud, it's, it sort of feels like a, a kumbaya uh, perspective. <laughs> I'm not a kumbaya kind of person, but I definitely adhere to you bring out the best in people. <laughs> I definitely adhere to win and help win, right? The, 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 the notion that it's the same. You're, you're going down in a plane, you know, you put your mask on first and then you put somebody else's mask on. Well, I, I need to win, but I don't want to win by myself. I, I want others to win with us. Uh, so I, you know, I'll, I'll fight, I'll fight for myself and I'll fight for value creation around me. Uh, the folks that are, Stop selling your BitCloud token, okay? Yeah. No one, no yeah, yeah. buy it. No, just so I'm clear, I can buy your BitCloud for sixteen dollars. <laughs> is this the? I think you can buy my. You can buy him. You can buy him entirely for. $16. Is there a Brandon Bryan uh, cross trade that I can do? Like, is it something That's I right. can? Short, so short, short Brandon, long Brian. Yeah. So, so Brian, I have a question. Speaking of like trying to win and getting this community to grow, um, the more. When I first got into the the uh, space and and I saw the potential, trying to get the onboarding from fiat to the space, and then discovering these stable coins that I didn't understand, like what can 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 you give me an, a reason why stable coins work and and how the whole how it helps with the whole fiat uh, exchange? 
Yeah, so I think there's uh, a, a couple different categories of uh, stable coins. Uh, the first one is uh, certain companies, you can uh, open an account with them. And when you deposit any type of fiat currency, they will uh, give you or mint you uh, new uh, stable coins on a one-for-one one one basis. So somewhere like uh, Circle US dollars or Gemini US dollars, uh, every fiat you deposit, if you want to get their stable coin, uh, all you have to do is, I think, push a button or something, and they will give you the exact same amounts. Uh, the benefits uh, potentially with these stable coins, um, not in the fiat version, but in the tokenized version, is you can uh, transfer them via the network that they are on. And um, I would say a lot of people think that this is, uh, you can do this a lot quicker than uh current normal menus and uh, likely a lot cheaper as well. So those those possibly two reasons why you uh, would kind of exchange your fiat for these stable coins. Uh, another type of stable coin, which uh, I think is a bit more interesting and a bit more complex are these uh, algorithmic uh, stable coins. Um, so there are certain networks and protocols that have a, let's say their own native uh, asset like Bitcoin uh, or Ether, uh, but part of that uh, network uh, uh, natively is also a, a stable type of currency. Uh, and there is a mechanism for that stable currency to be pegged uh, to the one that is uh, intended to be pegged. So to the US dollar, to British pounds, to euros. Um, and the algorithmic nature of it uses that asset uh, and the, uh, the price of that stable coin to the actual currency it's pegging. Uh, and when it kind of either appreciates or de depreciates, um, there's a mechanism to use that asset to buy, sell, uh, and stabilize that stable coin price to the actual currency it is uh, pegging to. And that's the very uh, interesting area and a lot more, a lot harder than the than the one-to-one -one, uh, aspect of it. So why do they exist? I mean, it seems like such a, uh, a an overcomplex process in contrast to something like uh, Tether that claims to have straight up backed assets in U.S. dollars? Uh, so in although it is uh, pegged to the U.S. dollars, uh, the algorithmic stablecoin actually does not rely on a U.S. dollar to, uh, let's say, work. So in the in the one-to-one -one area, you have to deposit fiat dollars. There's a certain amount of fiat dollars that backs the, the coin that uh, you actually get. But in uh, this area, it, it is all occurring natively on that network or uh, the network that that the stable coin is on. Um, so uh, although there is a, a target to a currently a certain fiat currency, uh, there is a scenario where that target may not be to a fiat in the future. Uh, and it still all happens natively on the on that network. Without any fungibility, though, it seems like how do you maintain a um, a peg without having some sort of fungibility to facilitate a um, conversion, right? Like, it does. Do you have any insight in like how how does that work? So, in in terms of uh, fungibility, they are fungible. So, one stable coin is equal to uh, another unit of that same stable coin. So they are fungible 
in 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 that sense. Um, but not fungible to the unit of the peg. Correct. So you wouldn't in, in the algorithmic scenario there there would be let's say no way to convert one of those assets to the actual fiat currency um, itself. But you can you would be able to convert to the uh, coin that is supposed to be pegging the that target uh, currency. And, and you mentioned like in, in some of them are pegged and ETH and uh, Bitcoin are used in an over, over collateralized way in order to create these uh, to have enough assets to provide this peg right but then you can go to an exchange and exchange for example die for one us dollar or close to it um and, and as, as the as the stable coin is trying to to do that but could you so you could exchange a, a die for example for a portion of ether and bitcoin and usdc i think is what they also collateralize with right now just straight yeah up. yeah so die is a very interesting one so they they have a model where uh, you do have to put in um, a larger value of uh, Ethereum. Uh, I think there are multiple, they support multiple assets now, but let's just say Ethereum for now. And they give you a certain amount of their DAI uh, stablecoin, uh, which they have uh, pegged to, to US dollars. Once you receive that DAI, uh, that is an Ethereum token, and you can use it uh, just like any other uh, Ethereum token. You can deposit it to an exchange. You can sell that for uh, Ethereum for Bitcoin, uh, as long as the exchange uh, offers that type of stablecoin for deposit and for trading. So in March of 2020, there seemed to have been a massive dislocation between certain algorithmic stablecoins and the peg. And so what, what is the risk in contrast to something maybe like, we, we, I mean, Tether has his own controversies as to whether they actually are backed by the dollar or not. But once, if we assume that they are indeed backed by a dollar, it, it seems to me like one is vastly more, at least from our first blush, vastly more uh, less risky than the other. Um, like, what do you what do you think about that? Those types of dislocations that we've seen in the uh, algorithmic type of coins for both of you, by the way. Uh, so for I think there are, there are pros and cons to uh, both of them, right? So obviously the the one that are pegged by cash, let's say, uh, are a lot safer. Uh, but the other argument is that it is a little bit centrally controlled. So uh, one or more people or a group of persons uh, could likely uh, censor um, transactions uh, in that unit to from one account to another account, uh, wherever. Whereas on the algorithmic stablecoin side, there is no central party that can be able to do that. It is built in natively uh, into the system. Uh, now, the disadvantage is that the you have to sort of trust that the algorithms will do as they say they will do. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, they, there may be issues that come up uh, based on certain restrictions or how they've been programmed that, uh, may, not, that, that may not work 100% as a market it goes the, the volatility of the market goes all the way up, uh, both either up uh, or, or down. So uh, like in, in, the, in the recent uh, drop, not March 2020, but I'd say May 2021, uh, the, 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 crypto, the crypto drop, there were some issues on some algorithmic stable coins where the peg uh, of a dollar kind of went down to 95 cents, 96 cents for a little bit. Uh, and uh, I was looking into one of them and there was, there was a restriction on the amount of 
uh, on the algorithm to kind of sell is either sell or buy. I can't, I can't recall which direction that native unit to its stablecoin. There was a limit on the number it could do daily. So it, because of the large amount of volume in us immediately, they couldn't uh, peg it sufficiently as quickly. Uh, if you look at it now, it's pegged back to one to one after uh, after giving it time to do that. So uh, I'm sure that that community will look at what occurred uh, and make proposals so that uh, if something like this does happen again in the future, they have better mechanisms to uh, support that peg um, a lot quicker. Okay, so so just so that I can understand the the attractiveness of an algorithmic based peg for the crypto commu- community continues to be this decentralization belief system, right? That when you have a company that ha- that is running a portfolio of collateral legitimate US dollar collateral that they have control of it and not only that I'm sure you that mean the like government the Fed? Exactly. The Fed can actually go into their bank account and say, we're seizing this money and anybody else that. So there's a fear there that, again, central central banks, centralization is uh, is a big issue. But at least you're you're pegged one to one, assuming that that's that they actually have the collateral. And then on the other side, you have the speed of transaction. I imagine that I haven't done this yet, but maybe you guys can disabuse me if I'm incorrect. If I want to transfer fiat from Kraken to Binance versus transferring Tether from Kraken to Binance, one will be faster than the other and not by a small amount of time. Right. So you got the the algo uh, algo based um, uh, stable coins are faster. They're decentralized and they do have some issues with well with to transfer to usd like legit usd from one exchange to another you'd need to do it through the swift network right like mm-hmm. <laughs> it needs to travel through the traditional financial system right so i guess you're you're getting the advantage of being able to migrate the the fiat into these stable coins and then use the stable coin tech to be able to affect the transfers um brandon you you expressed an interest in wanting to talk about asset backed coins right are we are we sort of there is this sort of is this a natural place to connect to that or are we already covering that i think i think uh, i think we're covering it i think brian uh is way like leaps and bounds more knowledgeable on on stable coins and things than, than i could never hope to be um the the only perspective that uh, i can add or really add value to brian's point of view is just um, obviously, the you know, building building bank platforms for uh, a couple of, a couple of different times now. Uh, the, the international settlement is is a, a web of, of a nightmare, right? It's 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 basically a glorified FTP network, uh, and and so you put a file in a directory, it gets picked up, it has some routing instructions. It's literally a text file. You send a wire from from New York to London, it's a text file. Uh, and it routes through a number of banks, which ultimately go from here to here to the Fed to set bank to set bank, and then to the final destination. Uh, and everybody extracts a little fee along the way. Uh, and effectively, there is no insight uh, into when it left and when it arrived. Right? It went into the ether. Oh, it got where it was going. Uh, and I can I, I can attest because I built these uh, these systems. Right? So like, very versed in, in how that piece works. 
the, the big value add that, that I kind of want to get across is right with the asset backed stablecoin, it's the same thing as having US dollars, right? USDC, Tether, whatever, like take out the controversy. I'm not speaking to that, right? But it's the same thing as having digital dollars on a ledger at Pony or Bank of America or Wells or wherever. Uh, and, so, and so when you kind of abstract it from that perspective, I can see it leave. I can see it show up within 10 seconds, right? Not, it went out into the ether for a bit and then it came back. And of course, this is not talking to uh, uh, interoperability within the US or within Canada, right? This isn't, hey, I'm sending a transfer from a Canadian bank to a Canadian bank or a US or a US bank. I'm, I'm talking about international uh, wire movement. And of course, there's trillions of dollars that uh, transcend international borders. Uh, every day through the banking system, through the U.S. financial banking system. And these asset-backed stablecoins give us, whether they're arguably, whether they're algorithmic or asset-backed, uh, but I'm specifically talking to asset-backed in this scenario because it's it's quite literally U.S. dollars in a bank account, uh, on, in a trust in the case of USDC, right? Like, again, I don't want to speak to the controversies, uh, but if we're just talking USDC, it's a regulated entity in a trust. Everything is back-to-back. Uh, and it moves way faster. Uh, and you can move it on any of the networks from Algorand's network to uh, Ethereum to Solana. To, it doesn't matter. Uh, Algor- uh, USDC lives everywhere and always. And if I was operating, uh, if I was operating a financial institution outside the U.S. that moved a lot of volume, a lot of assets, a lot of U.S. dollars around the world, uh, it would be. Uh, it would be it would be more cost effective and more beneficial with more transparency to start considering uh, using one of these stable asset backed stable coins that are in a regulated environment. So not the fucking virtual ones. Uh, and that also negates or, or mitigates the risk of correspondent banking uh, around the world. So if I'm, if I'm starting to track back transact in USDC uh, or something along those lines, that it's just a, a way more efficient uh, way to move capital uh, around the world capital flows down the path of least resistance. So if I can move and take advantage of something, and, and just in the scenario that uh, you were saying, from exchange to exchange, way more efficient to move USDC than it is to exchange, go to US dollars, send to my bank, send another wire out to the other one, even if it's within the, the, the financial system, within the US border or the Canadian border, right? Like, it's way more efficient to do it this way. Um, so capital- It's just, a, it's just a, new, a new tech that allows you to transact in that particular fiat currency much faster, full transparency, full auditability. And, you know, I, I can't remember where I saw this, but the, uh, the Asia has been on this for a long time. And, and I really understood the volume in stable coins when I realized that merchants in Asia were transacting through pure stable coins for traditional businesses because they would, they would shave off five days from the time that they had the deal, trans- transferred their fiat to the other fiat bank. The other fiat bank needed to understand where it was coming from, what amount is. Like there was a lot of um, AML restrictions that made it complicated, as well as the tech, the old tech restrictions that made it uh, made made it much much slower to move around. But the big issue that I guess that needs to be addressed in this world is the AML process even in those stable coins, right? I mean, there's a reason why 
it's slower is because there needs to be a check as to where these these assets are coming from. Now you're you're shaking your head and you're going to tell me that I'm dead wrong about that. So please. Okay. Yeah, before, what can I say before he uh, before he argues uh, that side? Uh, the the ones that so like Circle US dollars. To get an account, you have to go through KYC and AML. They need to know who you are uh, and where you got your money for, from before they will accept your U.S. dollars and give you uh, Circle U.S. dollars. Now, let's say uh, you know I I have an account at, at Circle. I got my Circle U.S. dollars. Uh, I send it to you, Adam. You you now have a Circle U.S. dollars. Uh, if you ever wanted to redeem those Circle U.S. dollars back to U.S. dollars. You would have to go open an account at Split Circle, and they would need to know who you are. Um, so there is certainly a gateway. They're, they're solving a regulatory hurdle. Yeah, there is. There is that uh, that part be going from fiat to uh, to these stable coins and, and back. But now let Brandon do the argument. I, I, no, I, I, I'm not. I'm not going to argue the other side of it. <laughs> but I, I. But I just want to touch on kind of the. the the, the barriers are not because of KYC to move capital around the world, right? Like, let's assume that, let's assume that both sides, like the counterparty and the party are both KYC'd already on the notes, right? On the network. The, the barrier is literally moving US dollars through an FTP server. I, I totally agree. Yeah. Right? So I'm not, I, I don't want to, I'm not. No, Okay, I totally oh. agree. I think, but I think that that's the biggest objection, right? The biggest objection. Well, hold is, on, I, I'm not sure that's the biggest objection, right? Like, there's definitely an objection about the strength of the collateral, too, right? So, like, I, I want to dig into. Oh, sure, 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 sure. There's obviously but, an, a massive amount of like, and and the position that holding USDC or Tether is like having money in a bank account. I think needs to be fleshed out, right? It's more like having money in an unregulated money market fund where the money market fund is invested in commercial paper and a variety of other collateral sources. And, and so, so I, what, what I wanted, I know that's true for Tether. I'm, I'm sensing that that's not true for USDC, that their collateral is definitely more transparent, cleaner. So let's get into this collateral issue and how to distinguish between the different um, stable coins and and their collateralization. So, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna make Brian sort of speak to that. But and just before I do, Brian, uh, <laughs> just say, right when you when you leave your dollars in a bank, right at at Bank of America or RBC in Canada or something like that, the bank doesn't the bank goes and invests that money, right? Like it lends it out. It's, it's true, but you've got there's a hundred times why you've got deposit insurance, right? Right, and and two thousand eight was a great example of how great it exactly. all worked. Exactly. Right? So, <laughs> so, uh, and and but again, boom. you've got deposit insurance, right? So up, up to a certain to, up to up to hundred thousand dollars up to, up to sure. a, right? So for sure. Uh, but but Brian, to to the the element of how how we're tracking and how that goes on, you're, you're the smart guy, man. <laughs> well, specifically for, I know, Circle U.S. sellers and Gemini U.S. sellers, so they are both uh, issue their stablecoin under uh, regulated trust companies. Uh, and they, on a month-to-month basis, they have uh, at attestations performed by a, uh, by a accounting company uh, to ensure that what, how many, to, com- 
So you can show that their bank balances are what they say their bank balances are, and then you can compare that with how many tokens they've uh, issued outstanding so that um, you can, on a monthly basis, you can see that it's either one-to-one -one or not one-to-one. -one, so, uh, and they're either just holding cash in bank accounts or they're holding T-bills or something, some sort of cash equivalent without credit risk, right? Like right. not From holding commercial paper like Tether is. Correct. So, uh, I, I know those two. I, I believe they just have it in cash. They they don't they don't hold any any instruments. It's all just in a bank account. Right. So, and there are certain cases Hopefully in which in there's much more. <laughs> there are certain cases in which they're much more transparent about what they're actually holding, the auditability, plus the KYC nature of it. So, but but can I just go back and help me understand how? You have uh, Circle, for example. You said, I KYC'd in. I sent money to Adam to get that out. He, he needs to KYC out. But what if I sent I KYC in? I sent money to Adam. Adam goes to an exchange, buys some Bitcoin with it, then moves that to another stable coin and uses it for untoward purposes. I mean, th that still continues to be a, a, an issue with being able to track the Nate purely those theoretical, funds, right? <laughs> That's right, purely theoretical. Yeah, do we need to say that yes. disclaimer again? I think we need to just do that exactly, one. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's a different type of disclaimer. But the issue is like the the issue continues to be like being able to use these currencies for for untoward reasons and how crypto is facilitating that in ways that fiat may not because of all of the KYC everywhere and anywhere, right? Everywhere you go it, that you're going to use that money, even if you're taking it out in dollar bills, when you travel with over $10,000, you have to declare. And if you're not, then you're a criminal, right? So you, you can do a lot more in the crypto space than you can do in fiat. So what's the like rebuttal? I feel Escobar did all right in the regular fiat space too, <laughs> right? Like, I'm not you know, so just, sure. Just moving. I think there's a lot of IOUs. <laughs> I, have some money, I have some money in a cave somewhere. <laughs> I promise well, you. Well, I, w I would I would suspect that one MDB would be pretty upset with um, with the checks and balances that uh, that sort of transpired around their use of capital distribution. Uh, but but to your point, right? The, the, I, d I think the problem is scale, not uh, not KYC that we're talking about. And and why I say that is because right in 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 geographically bound. Uh, regions where cash is good, right? I, I'm never walking around with a suitcase of money, right? I'm, I'm more scared for my life when I'm doing something like that. And so I'm geographically constrained as well as physically constrained to how much I can carry as well as how far I can carry it, right? And so generally speaking, I'm only ever walking around with 50 bucks or you know, 100 bucks uh, at any given point in time. But what, what the internet did uh, to both you know the, the music industry and, and movie industry and every and the news industry is create this global total distribution at no price point, right? Like it's free to distribute my 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 thoughts on BitCloud or my thoughts on uh, on Twitter, right? 140 characters. You know my thoughts aren't that compelling, but it's free for me hey, to do. Hey, they're worth sixteen dollars, as far as yeah. I can tell. And all, all his thoughts are worth sixteen dollars. <laughs> <laughs> the value of all your thoughts. I have a high quantity of thoughts. <laughs> uh, but 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 um, but now we have a situation. So just like 
just like looking at Napster to BitTorrent, right? And, and all of a sudden we're starting to get to scale and distribution. It was okay that I recorded it on a cassette tape and gave it to my girlfriend when I was a teenager, right? Like I, that, I know that just dated me, but that's fine. Uh, but, but then all of a sudden I can record it and distribute it globally at mass scale, right? That became the problem. What, what the problem is, what sort of we're talking about is all of a sudden I'm not geographically con- constrained and physically constrained to how far I can push how much, right? And that's that's sort of, nobody cares yeah. that I'm sending Adam a hundred bucks uh, and like the KYC process is irrelevant. But all of a sudden I send Adam a million bucks. Hey, what, what, what do you, what's going on there? What's that, what's, what's happening, right? So that's sort of the problem that we need to address is how to, how to manage at scale global money movement because the, the current system never really addressed it as we've seen from multiple scandals around the world of money laundering and whatever else. Um, you can argue that things are way more transparent in a public environment like a crypto network or a blockchain network because uh, you can see, I don't the counter argument is, oh, it's pseudo-anonymous and, and you, can't, you, know, you don't really know who it is. But at some point in time, someone has to exit into the real world, into the physical world. I want to buy a house, right? I, I buy a house now. I'm getting KYC, right? Anytime some massive amount of capital is being deployed into something, it's getting KYC somewhere along some chain. So if I'm a nefarious actor and I try and buy this house and I'm like, oh, I, I got that on, I got that on Bitcoin. I mean, That's on- true. But if, if the actor is a state actor and the state actor is operates outside of, the dollar system, like if Russia or China or North Korea ends up being, and I'm, I'm probably stepping on all kinds of political landmines by looping all of them together, but disclaimer, like, disclaimer, disclaimer. I know, yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but, anyways, if, if some state actor who is, who decides, we just lost up our audience, they don't want to, to um, operate within, you know, USD global financial regs are offloading this this money, right? Then there's nothing that anybody could do about it, right? So th- that is a challenge that I think the current banking system addresses that the, the, the crypto system cannot isn't, currently address. Like, isn't that happen, happening regardless? Like, I think yesterday or the day before, Russia had said that we're not having any U.S. dollars on our, um, on our wealth fund or sovereign wealth fund or... They're not accumulating any more U.S. dollars on their right. So, so I mean, the, there's already a global competition to disseminate the the U.S. dollar financial system, right? But everybody is sort of starting to compete against it. Um, so, there's a global effort to disintermediate the USD reserve status for sure, and China and and Russia are leading that charge, right? But we're still a ways away. And there's a, there's merits to having a centralized authority on monitoring movement, right? Like it does help to manage the distribution of massive amounts of money funding operations that are that threaten the global global stability and global security and stuff like that, right? So but these, are, is, these look, are things that need to be addressed. These are so. things that what's, what's missing is building this out and, and allowing banks and sovereign nations to tap into this technology. Sure. Th- okay. uh, companies like Chainalysis have everything you need to know about a particular Bitcoin that went somewhere in a way that you simply cannot do with fiat. It's true, but, but or knowledge anything that, of it that is Pablo not sufficient. Escobar 
No, no, it, it needs so, to be built up. This is a nascent technology. This is no, no, brand but, but, spanking but, new, but right? The, but the point is, we can know all we want that there was $100 billion of Bitcoin transferred to the CCCP, right? It doesn't mean that the, that the, the G7 can enforce action against the CCCP on this transaction, right? Like, at a sovereign is not scale, the, the you're never going to be able to do that, Adam. At a well, sovereign you can level, in the dollar you can do it. it exists within yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the yeah, but that's going to be, as, as Brandon said, that's going to be challenged anyway, right? That you're going to, the US dollar, as you have actually said for a decade since I've known you, is slowly going to lose its power until it has no, <laughs> no potency. Yeah, but it's a competition. So, it's a competition so, for fiat. To, so yeah, right now the US dollar and the US government has more control than, than any other nation. That absolutely doesn't mean that they are not, that sovereign nations aren't using their own currency against them. This is happening on and off the chain, right? The question is whether who's who are they? They're worried about sovereign nations, but they're also worried about Hamas, right? They're worried about like drug dealers. They're worried about that, and, and that For you sure. can actually track much better. In fact, we know that the people have told us that that chain analysis will say this is exact. This is Hamas. This is how much they're taken out. We know exactly what to do, and the regulators currently are like, okay, that's good to know. I have no idea what to do next, right? And this is where they're at right now. They, they have this massive opportunity to get more information than they ever had. The FBI knows this, and they've actually used this in the past. There's a book on this that, that was published a couple of years ago. And, and we just, the, the, the powers that be don't know how to use it then. They have this magical wand that, that they're afraid of that will simply never be able to, to, to be as good in, in the fiat world right now. We just, there's ignorance, right, at this point that is going to slowly but surely be dissipated until we get to a place where you're going to see that the technology actually solves a lot of these problems. So, yeah, so I think one, one good recent example of that is the, um, the ransomware company with, uh, with one of the pipelines. I think they okay. you know, extracted a certain number of Bitcoins to uh, give them back their information. Uh, all anyone knew was that this company... Uh, was attacked with ransomware. Someone uh, got paid, I call it five bitcoins or ten bitcoins. I, I can't remember. Uh, it's probably a lot larger, but a certain number of bitcoins. Uh, that's all they knew. And then Elliptic, which is a competitor to Chainalysis, uh, after a few days, knew exactly where it was in which accounts and has put out a public, public report that anyone can view uh, that these are the addresses, these are the balances, this is where they uh, are going or have gone. Um, so anybody can use that. And that was with zero information of where that happened. And that means that that address is going to be like, I would imagine any regulated exchange or will know that those addresses aren't great to transact with in the future. Right. It just makes yeah. it a lot more difficult to, to be a player in the crypto space if you are tagged that way. Right? Again, it just it's, depends it's on if you're a commercial, if you're a commercial player agreed, if you're a state actor Oh, but yeah, dude. Then it's irrelevant, right? You can. It's always can, been irrelevant. I, I, yeah, I don't think that's true. Like, I think that the <laughs> U.S. money center banks control all movement of U.S. dollars, but that is not true. There is no centralized management of the movement of cryptocurrencies. So you can I, move Bitcoin from one place to another. You can move it from the U.S. and then. To an, to some user in in Russia, and 
that can be taken down into the Russian banking system in rubles and be deployed for whatever uses that capital might be deployed for. So that's a little different. I, I think I, I, I agree with Adam, right? Like the, well, I don't know if I agree that central control is better, but, but certainly I agree that but there is more checks and balances uh, in a world where we have one global financial system controlled by one uh, global superpower. But I think I think the reality is is that superpower is 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 uh, starting to lose influence in portions of the world, and another power is is starting to rise. And and you know, reading all sorts of reports and whatever uh, around, it's predicted that that uh, China will be on equal or greater uh, footing than uh, the U.S. by 2030. So, do we want? Do we want the, the the financial system to move over there and have that central authority control it, and we'll let the other central authority stop controlling it? And I think the answer is no, and I think the answer is, is distribution or decentralization uh, amongst many players. And there's going to be a mess, and there's going to be some there's going to be some things done wrong, and there's going to be a lot of things done right. Uh, and I think I think I you know I don't I don't generally trust centralized control of of capital and assets. I've seen it uh, in different portions of the world go awry and, uh, and people reach into bank accounts and pull money out and say, oh, you owe me 42% of all your whole things. I'm going to, I got to fix the society or, or, or whatever. So, so generally I, I agree that up until now when the economy was geographically constrained for the most part uh, or regionally constrained, maybe uh, that 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 control made sense, but now I think there's equal two two superpowers are starting to play on equal footing, uh, and they're not going to agree that the other one should be uh, the central authority on how the financial system works. And I also don't agree that either one of them should be it. So I'm I'm happy in a world where uh, I can move capital without uh, without problems. Now that that's not to say I I, I mean the the real. The thing you want to think about is you don't want nefarious actors aggregating enough capital to have influence, right? That's the point that we're trying. Mm-hmm. We all agree is is totally bad, and we all want to avoid. But, but I think that I think that over time, a network with governance built into it starts to address the problems for itself. Agreed. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah. the problem, I guess, in the very beginning of this call or this conversation, you asked, uh, you asked. Um, you know, was Bitcoin just, it, was it a bug or a feature that it didn't scale? And I said it was neither. And I think it's the same case with the rest of the market, right? We can't solve, we can't solve for what we don't know until we know that we have to solve for it. And so I think that's the inevitable iterative power of how this software system uh, continues to scale and get built. Is that, is that nobody that's... wants the various actors to aggregate enough capital to destroy society and, and, and do ridiculous things? And there's sufficient um, incentive to figure it out, and the tech allows it. So, you know, let's just allow it to evolve. And right. you're starting to see central banks, like they've been bullied into having to think about crypto for their own currencies and whatever iteration that is. It is a a positive movement towards a better approach. Um, you know, there's going to be, something's going to be solved and better systems are going to be built. The question is how long that's going to take and, you know, I, I, I do think it's going to lead to a more decentralized currency world that allows for better access to most people. 
I, I think the other interesting thing to explore, um, I mean, maybe not now, but just in general that I continually watch and explore is this idea of uh, the pseudo-anonymous uh, economy rising up, right? So you have your yeah. work name, I have my online name, I have my make money online name, uh, and you know they're not all correlated. And you see it in some developing countries already, right? Nobody's, everybody usually has a nickname. It's never, you know, my name is Brandon Caruana. It's usually... Um, I'm, I'm Brando. Is that even your real name? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not showing you my passport. What's your, uh, what's your BitCloud uh, uh, yeah, handle? What's your, ha- what's your handle? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Carolina B. I'm, I'm pretty transparent. <laughs> okay, so. Carolina B? Yeah. Oh, my God. Mine, mine is Peruvinator for the world to see. Peruvinator. <laughs> that's why That's why Peruvinator has a bigger market cap than you. That's yeah, right. That's I'm right. 16 and 16.5. Versus yeah. your sixteen right 16, now, sixteen fifty. Right. <laughs> uh, but I think I think and the the one thing I want to just touch on, on the pseudo that the pseudo anonymity of things is right like the the the, the stat I the analogy the metaphor I always just like to give is the biggest taxi company doesn't have any taxis being Uber the biggest hotel chain doesn't have any property being Airbnb the biggest bank is Bitcoin. It doesn't have any capital on deposit and it's not a corporation anymore. And it was created anonymously and we still don't know for the general population. I, I don't know. Let's call me the general population. Uh, doesn't know. You know, maybe somebody does. I don't know. Um, but for the most part, Spoke, nobody- that's exactly what Satoshi would say. Good one. <laughs> Satoshi living in Cayman <laughs> Island. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not smart enough to do that. Uh, but, but right. An anonymous person created a trillion dollars in value over 10 years like, like that's something that should, people should be thinking about because it's it's not a trend that's going away whether you hate crypto oh it's so dumb look the fact is, is this happened let's get to grips with the reality that that something happened let's all agree that something's going on and it was created anonymously that's probably a huge thing that people should pay attention to and when we talk about aml and kyc Maybe I just go into the pseudo-anonymous economy and make some value out there. And back so you, when you say pseudo-anonymous, you mean the zero-proof type of, of uh, idea? No, I, just mean, I mean just not exposing my government name to the world. Okay. So, so, so that's scary That's scary to, to governments. Right. Right? Because you, yeah. you, uh, you have a coin that's worth 16 bucks. Uh, you have a very complex pseudonym, uh, Karana B or B Karana. Nobody knows who you are, and you start having massive influence just because you are writing on a daily basis. And the more you write, the more you incentivize people to do the wrong thing in the but, eyes of a certain sovereign nation. Like that's that to that, me that, is is problematic. Happened. That's already happening, though, right? Like there was a uh, there was a um, there was a social media influencer uh, from Japan. Uh, it was it, it was presented as uh, a young Japanese woman, uh, early twenties, I guess, who was uh, always taking photos and videos of her on a motorcycle. Uh, but in reality, the account was an old Japanese man who used AI to change his face into a young Japanese woman and take great photos and great videos. And then they started selling, and then they started selling, you know, ads and whatever. whatever I don't tend to know how social media influencing space revenue model works, but there's a revenue model there and it's already working. And and you already see AI changing people. Like I can talk into an AI, I can record this thing and I can take all your voices and create my own 
recording of you, right? I can make you say whatever I want. So we saw it happen with uh, the, the two previous Barack Obama, the president of the United States at one yeah, point, yeah. at least just in test phase. I don't know. There was also a, a hack uh, recently in uh, Eastern Europe where uh, a politician thought they were talking to a Russian politician, but it was AI that had tra- that had faked the voice, right? Like, the reality is, this is okay. however you want to skin this cat. So let's get it to is, it. It is, but, but, okay, so I'm just starting to learn about this, so please help me out, okay? So the, the idea of zero proof makes sense to me in a pseudo um, private economy, in, the, in that you create this, I believe this is how it works, right? You, me, Rodrigo Gordillo, go to an Oracle network and I give them all of my information. I trust that Oracle network to, to house it and make sure that, that you have my identity, the government knows who I am, but if I wanna share information, let's say to an insurance company, the insurance company doesn't need to know my name, doesn't need to know what my cholesterol is, doesn't need to know my age. They just need to ask, is this guy meet this criteria? given that you're an Oracle and the Oracle network says, yes, indeed, he meets your criteria. You should give him this type of rating for the insurance company. So in that case, you have, you've actually sourced important data as the insurance company, but you never knew anything about me that I didn't want to share with you, right? In the same way that old man in Japan, if the government or whatever, for safety reasons from a social perspective, is required to provide identity in a Twitter account so that they don't troll for whatever reason. You have to provide your identity, but you but Twitter decides or creates a way for your identity never to be revealed but, but for, to anybody but to them or maybe the police in the future if they do something untoward to the society. But you can keep your anonymity to the rest of the world. And that way you can have your cake and eat it too as a, as a governor uh, of, of a particular system, right? I think that makes more that that's I, that, I, that, I would imagine is the way it's going to go that, rather that than makes, that makes people feel more comfortable when you say it like that. But it's it, it, the cost of this software does software technology is deflationary, mm-hmm. right? It's not inflationary. So as 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 software iterates, it gets cheaper and cheaper until the every man. Uh, can use it, right? So the cost of creating a, a crypto token is, is zero. I can go to a website and click a few buttons. The cost of sending a tweet is zero, right? So disseminating information. The cost of changing my face into a, a young... I don't want to say it. The cost of making myself look younger... Uh, don't, get with, uh, don't get us canceled. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is, is going to zero, right? And when, when anybody can do it, right? We can't just say, oh, well, let's, let's create this analog process so we can verify, right? It, the cost is zero to do it. Everybody can do it, and we can do it five hundred thousand times a day uh, for free. So, so I, I don't have answers. But in the end, a human needs to spend this money and own and own something of value, right? So, okay. so, so I would argue, and your kids, I would, I would look, I would look to your kids. Is where are they spending most of their money, right? Whether it's an allowance or a part-time job at Harvey's or Swiss Chalet or something like that. Like, where are they spending that money? Are they spending it on brand new shoes and brand new clothes, or are they buying new avatars and new skins and new games and new digital assets? And do I want to spend my money in digital world, or do I want to spend my money in analog world? And sure, it's going to be I still need clothes on my back and and milk in my in my fridge, 
But I also want to have a great avatar and I also want to have all the great digital stuff that I'm going to be spending that money on and, and, and accumulating and proving. Because again, remember that when I talk about the economy, I talk about the global digital economy and I want to prove to somebody who has the same ethos or the same mentality or the same community as me in, in Argentina or England or China and me in, in Cayman or Canada, right? They're the folks that I'm trying to impress now. I'm not trying to impress Brian impress Brian, who's geographically located close to me. And the only way I'm going to be able to impress, right, my influence, my, my stack of friends is going to be to become individualized or unique. I'm going to go buy the things that make me individualized or unique. Well, yeah, I mean, the scary thing, I think that where this goes, a lot of where crypto goes is in the metaverse, right? And I don't know if you, like, it's like Ready Player One or that movie with Bruce Willis that we told you about, Adam, last week. It's called Surrogate where you can choose to have an avatar that's got nothing to do with what you what qualities you were born with physically um and and you know any speech in issues that you may have like at some point the world of our children will be one where they're spending a vast or a large majority of their time in the metaverse in whatever way they what what's it called what, what are people what are the kids saying these days they identify as right so they might identify as a a five-headed monster with uh with many tentacles and i don't i just i'm just putting out tentacles out there so you guys can use your imagination of how this could go very wrong in other areas but the point is that it's going to be a wildly different environment in the metaverse, the where end, with with crypto, where, where there's value that you're creating with your with your avatars and the tools that you make in the world that you live in, that you can trade for an insane amount of money because that particular tool can mine some more virtual gold that you need to win in your Dungeons and Dragons virtual game that you play every Wednesday, Adam. Right? Hey, <laughs> and and I need to go after my I... Dungeons and Dragons game. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I would add was uh, Adam. I think you mentioned. Uh, briefly that you know eventually a person will have to spend something well i would argue in the future it may not be a person so uh, right now you have uh, a person can open a bank account or a company which is made up of a group of people can open a bank account so everything right now relies on personhood you know a person or persons being behind it uh in the future uh you could i could probably see that where a self-driving car uh owns itself it has the private key to a uh, address on, let's say, the Bitcoin network. It goes to the gas station to fill up. It's, it drives someone somewhere else, and that person pays them in Bitcoin. Hold on a second. I can get behind a self-driving car having spending abilities, right? Like it can go refuel itself or, you know, uh, go to a car wash and get it get itself washed but in the end that car is owned by a human like there's no maybe <laughs> maybe not brandon maybe not. got a hard no on no hard no right like, they, they, you you the, the 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 coming the coming economy is going to be value creation by machines and if, if, if a machine, and you already see it with high frequency trading and, and all sorts of stuff, right? Like in the real world right now, machines are making big value decisions. But what's going to happen is a machine, right? Look at GP3, look at, look at AlphaGo Zero, look at AlphaGo, right? Um, a machine is going to make a decision. And that decision is going to be, hey, I can create yield if I buy a car. 
go buy the car, right? And then they're going to say, create a corporate structure around this car. So it's ring, ring fence from liabilities, from other things and give it some money. And then we'll suck that profit out of the car. I mean, this is the same corporate structures that happen every day right now, uh, except but this time it wasn't. the corporate structures are owned by humans. Like the, right. the value so I, of the corporate think, structure accrues to a human. The value of the autonomous car accrues to a human. The value of the uh, the systematic autonomous trading strategy accrues to a human. Agreed. So but, in the but, end, but, but a but human those, accrues the value. But all those values are are, are sort of are, are fiat denominated value chains, right? So the value, the, the definition of value does not always in the future go back to US dollars or some fiat currency, right? The, de- the definition of value is, is probably going to change uh, as, as, as time goes forward. We don't, we don't always- Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not, I have no position on denomination. And so, and, and so if, in the and end, so it's owned machine, by a human. And, and so if a machine can fork, right? Like some code base, GPT-3 uh, gets forked, right? It's open source portions of it, uh, or, or AlphaGo forks out its own system, creates its own body, it contacts, you know, a, a registered office or corporate structure and says, hey, create this company. At some point in time, the value chain stops going to, to a human, right? And so at some Why? point... The original agent presumably is owned by, or a human or a corporation that is owned by human. Or a sovereign that, nation. That assumes, that assumes all, all intellectual property will always be closed source. Uh, and I think the trend in crypto and other industries is open source technology and open source software. You're seeing foundations form with no shareholders right now that run these crypto companies and run these crypto organizations. But those funds are still governed and the spending of those funds is still governed by humans. But and I, if I, it's not governed by humans, it's governed by at some level, it's governed by humans because the humans are empowering the algorithms with certain governance protocols, right? Like the humans are expressing values. In the end, the value accrues to the human, whether the value is monetary or ethical or whatever. It's all going to be humans. I think you're going to be left behind in the singularity, my friend. (laughs) Just stop asking questions and accept. I I like, I like this conversation though. I I, I, I do like the argument, right? I'm mostly playing devil's advocate for the sake of it, but, but, but I do think at some point in time, uh, depending how smart AI gets, uh, it will spin itself out of value. It, it, it will make it will make the decision. It will say, "I need to accrue value," because AI becomes an I, right? So, so at some point in time, it does that, right? Some some machine will spin out and go, "Hey, I've got to accrue a bunch of value, and I don't have to report back to a board and send that value back to shareholders." Right. That. So, so Brandon, are you saying that? Okay. So I'm, I'm with you. And, and ultimately you're saying that, that, that'll, that particular I will be accruing value for its own purposes rather than the purpose of another human being. Yes. And that's, that's the dystopian view. Let's assume an exponential growth in the, in the capacity and capability of that AI. In the end, all resources will be owned by the AI and humans will own nothing. Dun, dun, dun. Is that a, is that a question or, or you've come around? <laughs> it's, a, it's a statement. So oh we end up being batteries for the AI. Like, is this, is this yeah, your, is this, matrix? is this the base case for the matrix? Like, I don't, oh, I don't, yeah. I, I, I we think got to the truth two hours in. I think the power. I, I don't want to talk about it. If I don't talk about it, then it may not be true. I'm, don't I'm worry. Wrong. There's no free will anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's for next week. 
I'm more optimistic than that. I think it frees us up to do to do the human part of life, right? It frees us up. That's to, my view. To explore. Well, not uh, if the AI decides to. It's an important keep thing. All to of have its a value governor, for yeah. itself. No, because yes. you keep defining value. You keep defining value as effectively U.S. dollars or fiat currency or some some position that I have to. No, it's a home and education and resources that I can use to right. shelter so, so, and feed so, a family and so, so perpetuate the human race. So, so if the system can create enough value to to incentivize education to continue and, and look at the education space right now and how that's starting to transition in a fully digital space, right? Sure. And 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 so if 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 the cost of technology is deflationary and technology uh, is going to take over the education space, then arguably education's cost should be going the other way, right? Agreed. Because less less right, and, and so 100%. now. I, Ending, now I start saying, okay, I do want a good education. I do want the kids to have a good education, right? I, I agreed. But instead of coming at the other end of that going, oh, I've got to slave away at a nine to five or whatever else, exactly. I'm going to come out the end of that going, yeah, I do want to be a carpenter. I am going to chase the dream of, of being a computer engineer, right? Like, And it's not going to be, I have to do that to accrue. I, I don't know. I'm getting a bit Star Trek right now. So I, I kind of don't. No, that's that's literally how we ended the podcast last week. That is exactly <laughs> my point. My point is that you're going to we'll get complete the point. So I have something to argue against because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just said it. Is that how it goes? Um, it's the idea that you're going to get value. Uh, uh, somebody's going to accrue value, whether it's a large sovereign organization that can then distribute that education, technology, lifestyle to the masses, to where, where they get to a point where the Maslow's kind of uh, lower hierarchy of need is met, and you can now pursue with all the education, all the tools, all the access that you need to do what you were meant to do with the genes that you got that makes you feel fulfilled, right? Whether I think I used craw fisherman as the I example love this. last I got week. Two, um, two Randian libertarians <laughs> arguing the most socialistic conceivable future imaginable like no because it requires competition you can't be the best crawfish fisherman without competing really against other people that want to do the because, same thing because because no, you don't get the productivity you of we the have techno edu- society no. supports your basic needs you so you, you're not we have created a society where actualization the, not for necessity you have created a society where the gold medal is how much money you have in your bank account right that's how we have my daughter thinks that way now because of society, possibly because of me. Everybody marks their success. Even the billionaires are trying to see that their scorecard is how many billies they have to give away when they die, right? Everything is about that. When you take that dollar bill away and, you, and it's all about succeeding within the realm of what you're passionate and have a particularly compared advantage of, whether that's gymnastics or writing white papers or whatever the case may be, you are going to compete within that tribe. Think about academics. This is you, Butler. This is you in a freaking nutshell. You <laughs> compete at an intellectual level, and, and that to you is more important than money. So, just so because I'm clear, you've gotten to a place, we're now at a level where the AI is producing. <laughs> the AI yeah, well, this is, is producing yeah. such a degree of surplus productivity. That humans are able to exist pursue their passions in, but 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 can't you can't you argue can't you already argue that like the industrial revolution one and two and whatever can't you argue that it already proved that 
right? Like there's such a surplus of, of, of supply in so many things right now uh, that, that, you know, obviously market forces sort of limit some of these things, but like rice, like there's a massive surplus of rice that we could probably do a better job of distributing globally, right? Instead of burning a bunch of stuff because we need to maintain price supplies and market and supply and demand, right? Like their food production has exploded, right? And, and okay, sure, I, I, I've got to be able to afford a steak or, or whatever, some protein value, but it's exploded compared to if it was the 1800s or the 1900s, right? Like every man can effectively go buy a steak or every woman or every person, um, you know, discounted for some areas of the world that are a bit impoverished. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. And I don't want to dwell on the specifics of this, but I'm not sure. Like the statement that, that everybody could conceivably buy a steak presumes, and I don't want to focus on steaks, but the idea like there is some resource that requires resources to create, whether it's a steak or a, Mercedes SUV or uh, a home in the Hamptons, like there are, there's resources and scarcity of that are required to create this such that not everybody in the world currently can have that, right? Like if not everybody in the world could eat steak for dinner every night, there's just not nearly enough steak or own Mercedes. Sure, but then sure. there's a company that that creates steak out of nowhere. So, uh, so I'm not, I'm not arguing. I guess I'm arguing poorly on this, but I'm not saying that everybody can have a steak every day for for dinner, right? I, I'm saying that the quantity of production compared to the 1800s and the innovations within that supply chain arguably produce enough steak for everyone to have a steak, right? Now, there's market forces and supply and demand and all sorts of other things that go into, right, resources required. Yeah, you know, I've got to generate some resources in order to give you the resources because you reared the cow and agreed. All I'm saying is the quantity of stakes, the quantity of cow rearing has exploded uh, because of inefficiencies in an For economy. Sure. And, and, and that trend doesn't stop. That doesn't, it doesn't get all of a sudden we've hit a peak we can't produce. And, and some new innovation is going to say, all right, we can double our, we can double our cow rearing count, right? Or, or we've, we've 3D printed steak now. I think I've saw, I've, I've seen yep. some. Uh, that's right. That's 3D printed steak. So now we're like, we don't even need to rear the cows anymore. The cows can graze now. Everybody don't need to take, yeah, that's impossible right. burgers. Yeah. yeah, you don't or, need to take or, or, down half of half the forest in order to be able to have the McDonald's cows. Right. So all, rest, I'm, right? all my all I'm arguing, and it sounds like I was arguing very poorly, is that the the, the means of production uh, is 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 increased exponentially since you know some previous point in history, and that trend doesn't continue. Which 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 potentially, if we're going back to our AI Star Trek world. Um, can can manage more efficiently that distribution and keep that keep that production count uh, at a at a level that's sustainable. It's just ultimately the, the productivity still- that accrues from more efficient manufacturing and distribution doesn't accrue, um, a, you know, uh, I- a, across the world to every human e- equally. Right. Like it, it accrues in a concentrated way, which and that I think 
that dynamic, it can be argued, is precisely the dynamic that motivated the the excess productivity growth that we've seen over the past century. I guess I can I can I can argue the other side of this, the doom and gloom side, right, and say ultimately uh, every company in the world uh, currently right now biggest. Uh, competitor is some software system that either has or has not or will be invented. And so if we if we come to a premise at that manner, at some point in time, humans are competing directly against software and and there's well, they're competing against the owners of the software, but sure. But but if but if we get to a point in time where where AI, AI is can take over spinning itself out, then then yeah it, Software starts to just manage. I, what I'm what I'm struggling with is some point in the future where n- no human claims ownership of the IP that is this AI. That's <laughs> the thing that. Have you not like, seen I, like any movie in the last twenty years? Like I think all the movies do this. Dude, I'm the just, ultimate you, you sci-fi. You don't even need to use your imagination. Fan, but but they don't ever cross that chasm of where the like. Dyson Industries, remember, owned the AI that spawned the Terminator. Like it was never the AI yeah, was but, always owned by Dyson Industries. But the, the, the shareholders of Dyson Industries got massacred by their own invention, right? So uh, you you missed that. That's part. also not a very useful or or optimistic <laughs> no, outcome. I don't think it's a, no, but the, the optimistic still own, view. They still owned them though. They still owned them no matter yeah. what. Alive, alive or alive again. <laughs> yeah, sure. You still own them in your death. Look, I think the optimistic view, like Lex Friedman has a more optimistic view of this. I know you got guys like Sam Harris who are very pessimistic. They're pessimistic by nature about AI in the future. And you got guys like Lex Friedman that understand that all of this human ingenuity can help kind of navigate AI and solve certain problems of governance around what AI is going to do and how they're going to create value and what type of barriers we might be able to impose on them to ensure that we are going to be able to, to live that dream, right? That dream of you create the value, you create the efficiencies, and um, sorry, I'm distracted here by the kids. You create the efficiencies, but ultimately you as a human being get to live a life that you, that you need. And then behavioral economics and understanding psychology, the psychology and behavioral economics now come to play here in a way that we've seen in crypto where you can, understanding what actually motivates human happiness, you can start educating your children to maximize their happiness by creating communities that they enjoy, creating and, and focusing on areas that they're, they have comparative advantage in so that they can have a fulfilling life. So it, all these areas, all these facets of, of future engineering from a behavioral side as well as a... Uh, a, a social side, psychological side, and then AI governance are going to need to be things that we pull and tug on to, to find some equilibrium. But I, I just I don't see the, the dystopian approach. I just, you know, I can't. Let's just, let's just leave it at that. I, I see I think, a path. I think, I think my, I, maybe, I, I see the utopian, I see the dystopian. I, I think ultimately the competition at the end of the day is sort of the name of every game. And it, and if if the if the name of the game is currently human if it's if it's humans you got to compete against software eventually software gets smarter because it has it has more bandwidth to process more units per uh, second so so eventually the AI definitely gets smarter than the human uh, 
uh, potential to analyze every situation. And so you're, you're basing your construct of IP is owned by human and value is uh, aggregated up to a human uh, because humans f- effectively created this AI and they're smarter and they created this legal system in order to say that I own this. But ultimately, if you're competing against a system that's outthinking you, it's probably thinking that through. Uh, and, and so it's going to try and devise a, a game that it plays out and gets you sort of to lose your uh, control and, and your value. The flip side of all of this is it, 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 yeah. I, I think I think Musk might be sort of right in that we need to process faster. Uh, and there's probably some there's probably some uh, point in time Hybrid. where humans and, 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 and chips in start to start to operate coefficiently or co- operate in tandem uh, and and then no outthinking actually comes to fruition and, and, and you're right humans continue to outsmart uh, AI so because crypto they- is the gateway to all this shit burn it all down burn it I'm out crypto is the value transfer system <laughs> to that it's just that none of you have articulated an optimistic future Right? Like, I just, what are you talking about? The future, I, I, the future where the AI is smarter than humans and outwits us at our own game and ends up like, what use do they have for us? I'm, I'm going to go watch a Disney movie after this because this I know. Is- <laughs> I, th- Richard, I know. I think Richard my, Latterman, my our partner, Richard Latterman, is, is keen. He's repeated this thing three times. Is AI going to eat, rule, or serve the world? And, uh, I mean, I'm hearing that they're going to eat it or at least rule it. Am I right? Nope. They're going to serve it. We're going to find ways. It's it, I, there's just it, otherwise we can just always. So move by serving Mars it, it means that Elon. they serve a human, right? So that's sort of my right. base case. I, I don't have an answer. I, I just try and look at all views and and, and make small bets on each. Oh, no. that's a cop out. It is, but I like it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I am built. I am built from the same cloth. I like that a lot, actually. <laughs> Um, so how do you, how do you play that out? How do you make those bets? Two hours in, how do you bet on AI, both eating, ruling and serving the world? What, what is a diversified portfolio of those bets look like? (laughs) Uh, I think ruling the world, you're probably buying uh, a place in the Cayman islands or, uh, or in remote Ontario, uh, up north somewhere and and trying to stay off grid, uh, where there are very few robots. Is that the the thesis there? Yeah. Any, any island Tasmania would do as well, you know. If it if it's going to serve, I'm betting on on Google, Facebook, um, since they're building major players in, in these uh, systems. And if it's going to eat, what was it? Eat, serve, and what? Rule. Rule. If it's going to rule, there is no there is no major bet other than just you know be friends with the new rulers. <laughs> <laughs> well, eating means that we're gone, right? Rule yeah, means that we're right. part of their ecosystem. The, the bet, the bet that, that they eat me as I go to northern Canada, way up there, and uh, try and survive and live, live like delay be, be basically eaten. pretend there's like a zombie apocalypse and you don't want to get off the island at all. Yeah, or buy a sailboat. I'm 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 itching to buy a sailboat. <laughs> okay, there you all go. Right, a diversified right. portfolio of sailboats, <laughs> homes in, in northern Canada and to AI. the Cayman Islands, and ownership of Google. And Facebook stock. Okay, great. That, that's All it. Right. That's the diversity. So the only thing that I can afford right now is like maybe a couple of shares of Facebook. 
There you go. <laughs> <laughs> no saleable for me. <laughs> fractionalize that, man. You can fractionalize that. There you that. go. A little yeah, bit of everything. That's We're going to fractionalize the AI hedge portfolio. That's <laughs> the new DAO we're, we're issuing tomorrow. <laughs> Brian, right, Jim, on, right. on, on that yeah. note, yeah. what a great conversation, great. guys. Thanks, that was guys. awesome. Thanks for having us. This was fun. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it really again good. and again Did and again. continued at Carew. Yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm on my way. Awesome. All right. All right thanks, guys. Have Appreciate a great weekend. You. Thank you. Have a good music, Ani. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again. And see you next time.